0: Hello, adulting well listeners. This is Pepper, aka Joshua, aka Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So, we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So, you can see you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it, it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that, and we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just, uh, that's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So, uh this is our first ad and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well Podcast. I am your co-host Joshua. I am joined by the
1: amazing (laughs) co-host Kevin. And uh, we have Dunstan Bruce uh, with us today. And Dunstan is a musician, filmmaker, activist, uh, basically fill in the blank. And um, we are, as always, really excited. I feel like this season we've had some great guests Um. Dunstan um, has a long history in uh, political uh, activism through music as well as film. And for those that don't know, he was uh, in the long, long long-running band Chumbawamba from Leeds in England, and um, amongst other things that we will get into, but probably one of the better-known things about him. So welcome, Dunstan. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Uh, It's a pleasure. Yeah.
1: So um I think we can kinda of launch right into it. I mean I, I'm curious how you got into punk. You're you're originally from Billingham, is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a small new town in the north of England. Um I grew up there. Uh, our house had no books or no records. I grew it was like a cultural wasteland. What did your parents do? Uh my dad was a fireman. And my uh, oh. mum didn't work. Um, uh, she she had been a, a secretary at the, fire, at the fire at the at the same fire station that my dad worked at, and that's where they met. Oh, oh. But he was a yeah, he was a he was a fireman. Uh, and there wasn't there wasn't much uh, there wasn't much culturally there where I where I grew up. So um, it was it was punk coming along that um, that sort of um, set me on you know a road for. Searching for different things and new things and being excited by this, by this new phenomenon that that, that was happening because it was a small town. There's only a few people who were into punk. So, how you know, old were you
0: when this was happening? 15, 16. And what kind of kid were you, pre-punk?
2: Pre-punk, um, I'd sort of um, the first the first albums I ever bought were Elton John, Alice Cooper, and Slade. Whoa. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> um awesome. yeah. singles I bought were Slade singles. Um and then uh but I did but I did have a lot of um uh prog rock that I had to ditch in 76,
1: seventy
2: six, seventy seven that I had to deny, you know, spend years denying my prog rock background, which was yeah. you know, dabbling in stuff like yes and Genesis and uh Rush <laughs> and stuff like
1: that. Yeah. It
2: establish your cred.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now I, it's okay so to admit that again. You know, like. it, yeah, you can admit it now. I, I actually saw Russia a number of times in the in the eighties and nineties, and. You know, it uh, now I'm like you know, especially with Neil Perp passing away, now it's kind of like a almost like I can I I, ch- I checked that off as a drummer on my bucket list. I saw Perp play live, man. <laughs> Get some cool points for that for the old guy.
2: But that was so that that was a sort of like typical uh, sort of experience for a lot of people who go into punk that you thought that um that music was something that was done by that was performed by other people who were from another world. Totally. And Punk obviously blew that blew that out the water. So that was a brilliant that was a brilliant thing. You know, I was the right age, I was there at the right time, and and I I was immediately um, it fell in love with with the the idea that anybody could do it. You know, that we could all
1: be in bands, and it didn't matter how good or how, how bad you were. Yeah. Well, and you played prior to to being in you know the the kind of the longer running project of Chumbawamba. You were you were in a band. And Billingham as well, right? Uh, yeah, because because punk had sort of like um,
2: uh, made 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 that possible in a way. You know, like it was mm-hmm. like oh, you know, anybody could pick up a guitar and anybody could try and play a few chords. So um, yeah, I was in a band with a few mates. You know, nothing really, nothing really became of it. But it was just the idea that um, uh, you know you could get up and you could get up and play. And it was brilliant, and that and that sort of exposed me to a lot of other music, like uh, you know, like Velvet Underground and stuff like that that I knew nothing about at the time, you know. So it was like a whole other world that, that you know, that other world that you get into uh, because you realise that those where that where that punk music had come from and where that attitude had come from, you know. So I got massively into Bowie, at, you know, in the seventies as well, nice. and then um, you know, so it was all stuff like that uh, that opened up, you know, that opened up the doors to. Um, Really, it was like about finding the freaks, which
1: was something that always massively appealed to me. You know, all yeah, Well, and that's, that's actually something we talk about often. So kind of what, when you kind of found your crew, I mean, how was that for you? Because it sounds like at home you weren't getting any sort of like, there was nothing feeding that need for artistry. There was nothing feeding the cultural need as far as, you know, music, art. So what what was it like when you started meeting other you know young people that were that were kind of into this new because it was a pretty new phenomenon at, at that point I mean this is you know uh, early yeah, on yeah yeah it
2: was it was um um it it was it was basically the sort of experience of meeting people you know were in Billingham who were like into in, so you, you were drawn towards each other because there was there was one venue in Middlesbrough which was the town next door that every punk band played at. So once you started going there, then you started meeting, you know, and forming, you know, forming alliances with people, and then deciding who you were going to be in a band with and who was going to do with, you know, or who was going to play what and all that sort of stuff. And that was just like at that point, it it, it wasn't so much about um, having a um, you know a, a political agenda about it it was just about it was it was the freedom that it that it offered you and, and this insight into look there's another world there's another world that exists and you don't have to do what your parents did so a lot of those early years were about rebelling against you know uh, uh, against what society was um was was enforcing upon you in the route that it seemed that you were that you were forced to take. So it was like realizing that there was another world out there that was really liberating. Even even though that it didn't initially um, uh, 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 offer me sort of political solutions, it was sort of about more about being in those early days. It felt more about being anti what there already was. So it was like being anti-establishment for me um I, I my political awakening came through organizations like uh, rock against racism that started in the seventies in the in the uh, in the u k and and it was because bands like the clash and the and the specials and um you know uh bands like aswad uh, associated themselves with that movement immediately that I thought all right well I'm really into this band i'm gonna you know i'm gonna s- sort of investigate what it is that they're involved in you know the, what they're getting involved in politically. So that's how that's how I got into uh, politics. Really, was through was through music.
0: Isn't it fascinating so, that that blueprint is the same blueprint in in '92? You know that. Oh, I'm at home. I'm not getting culture. You know, you're a kid in the suburbs. There's one venue, and you meet all these people, and it's like the same blueprint. It's fascinating to me.
1: Um, yeah, I mean it definitely works. I mean there's a reason that author- authoritarian's go after uh artists first, right? I mean when you're when you've got a fascist regime or a authoritarian regime, they de- they definitely go after go after the the artists because there's no better way to connect with other people, really. I mean, if you can if you can go and enjoy music or go to an art show and enjoy the art, even if you're even if it's uh even if it's you know, uh something that's not necessarily beautiful to look at, but causes people to have conversation, it really changes the dynamic and the connection between individuals. You know, even if it's something you're going to argue about, it it sort of like raises the level of the conversation within communities. And, you know, I, I think it's a, a tried and true uh, formula, like jo- Joshua was saying, Um, you know, it was the same for me. Um, in the late 80s, when, you know, uh, when I started going to Gilman Street and um, and seeing these bands, uh, you know, really pivoted my like listening to music for sort of the joy of music to this like broader idea that there's more out there and there's more that that can be done um so you know which kind of leads to the question you know clearly um your your next project and uh, again a very long-running project chumbawamba you 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 all got together in like 82 81 somewhere in that time frame Um, how, how really? chumbo Wombos,
0: that was from 82. Yeah. Really? Damn. I didn't know that. I thought you guys were later.
1: Oh, that, the band was together a long time and, and clearly had very political, uh, you know, it was the, the inspiration for the band was clearly also political, not just the music. Um, and I believe I've seen a couple of interviews where even some of the members, um, maybe including you have talked about that. No one really knew how to play, uh, it just kind of came together because of idealism more than anything else. And I'd love to hear more about that sort of part of it, because I, I, you know, like Joshua, many people don't know how long that band was around.
2: Yeah. So we, so we, uh, the whole, the whole band thing, the whole lifestyle thing, we're all, we're all sort of tied in together because when we first started as a band, we found this house that we um, that we went and squatted. It was this huge house in uh, uh, West West Leeds. That's um, awesome. There that was uh, there was just had been abandoned um, by some people who we sort of knew vaguely, vaguely, and they'd gone away to Europe and they just abandoned this house. So the we moved in there together. So it was like a project. It was like a whole project was about doing the house up. So it was like a whole. It was a whole learning. The whole thing was a huge, huge learning experience of of of. Um, Having our own place, we were also what, about twenty one twenty two at that at that point maybe so we were you know we were we were we were young still, and so we were getting a band together, and at the same time we were discovering this whole new world of uh, of politics um, There was largely uh, uh, we were largely informed by a uh, crass um, who were around in the very early eighties, um, and they—they uh, they were very early on in the early days. Uh, you know, they were squatting a house uh, in uh, in the south of England. Uh, we were sort of aware of what they were doing. Uh, we in a, in a way we used to we used to monitor, you know, what they were doing, and 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 trying to a northern version of it in a way, which was which was a brilliant springboard for for us as a band because we we used. I think we used their records and their sleeves and their pamphlets and, and their ideology to sort of give us a grounding in, uh, you know, in this idea of how we could live together and how we could operate as a band, as a collective. And then I think when we felt confident enough, you know, we sort of decided to not do what our were doing. And we went off and did our own, you know, I went searching for different ideas and different ways of, um uh, projecting our ideas, you know, through music, you know, what we wanted to say through music, and, how, and what we thought was the best way of doing that. And, um, you know, now how we express our own creativity without just thinking, oh, you know, we're, we're trying to copy, you know, what somebody else is doing, and we found our own voice, um, you know, quite, quite quickly um so and that was a brilliant that was a brilliant amazing learning experience as well as the experience of a squatting in a house together and learning to you know to share everything with everybody else and you know just how you relate to people in that situation so it was a very very intense period for us that earlier it's very intense but it's but something that stayed with me you know for all my life
1: uh, I and you know it's funny because again we're you know as far as formula goes that sort of formula of Bands living together, having what you know in the U.S. we term punk houses. There's not as much squatting here. There was in San Francisco in like the late '80s, but it's just not as as big a thing. the The squatting, the squat, the squatters' rights here are very different than they are in in Europe and England. So it, it's
2: changed here as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh. So, but I think um, I think what's really interesting about that is you form almost it's it's more than just the project itself. It's it's like a family sort of working it all out together, you know, and, and that's one of the things that you just mentioned is so amazing because, you know, and I was going to kind of talk about this later, but I might as well bring it in now. A guy I was playing music with in 1990 and his sister dragged me to see Chumbawamba at Gilman street. Um, and I had, I wasn't a big fan of CRASS. I loved their politics and their like all of the stuff you were talking about, their the the pamphlets, the, the all the posters that they put into things. I was a, you know, a vegan um and was really loved some of the animal rights stuff, but specifically the politics was just so compelling and so attractive. And when they were like, "Oh, let's go see this band, Chumbawamba," they associated them with crap. You, you guys, with Crass, and I was like, "Ah, oh, Crass," you know, <laughs> um, musically. And when when we got there, and and I be, and I believe, and I I just watched the footage, and I, I I thought I'd remembered it correctly. And you and I chatted about this. You, you all opened with uh, an acapella song, which I, at that that, at that it was over. Like I was like, "This is not Crass." <laughs> And by any stretch of the, I mean, I was so utterly blown away. Like I, I did not even ever think about going to see a punk band and having vocals be so beautifully like put together and like so much energy in an acapella tune. I was just, I was just like, I was standing there like completely dumbfounded, you know, I'm a 20 year old. Kid, like, holy crap! And the the people that brought me, I was playing music with, and the his sister was basically our, you know, for both bands we were in together was like our sort of tour manager. We lived together, so it was all this sort of like, you know. So Chumbawamba took the formula that Crass had, expanded on it, and then when I was in these bands with with this guy, we took that same formula and expanded on it in our own way, and so you know that that there. There are very few bands that I've seen in my lifetime that I'm like the, that was a defining moment of like music for me, and I will honestly say, and I, I'm not embarrassed at all to say I'm a fan. I, I com- like it completely changed my belief in what could be performed as far as music, art, politics on one stage, and it was a performance. It wasn't just a show. So, um, but I, I, that that part of it, you know, when you say like, uh, you know you know, kind of the effect Crass had on you. And I mean, I can say that both bands, Crass, Chumbawamba, uh, some other bands here in the U.S. really had that strong effect on me. And it really changed how we were doing our music. And, you know, Joshua saw those bands playing. We were all about handing out literature, whether it was ACT UP, Animal Rights Literature. Um, sometimes we even you know, much to my chagrin, let RCP leave some stuff there, the revolutionary communist party, not my, always my favorites, but you know, it was, what about it was your a really, anti what about your anti jawbreaker propaganda? Yeah, we could talk about that later. Um, but, um, I, I just want to yeah. say, like, that was an incredibly defining moment for me and a lot of people in the Bay Area. There were a lot of people there at that show that are still very involved. I mean, Miriam's one of them. So. I think
2: Miriam Starr was at that gig as well. She
1: was. Yeah, yeah. we talked about it. <laughs> um, so t- let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned squatting um, and sort of, you know, the politics part of it. How how did, um, you know, how, kind of how did that how did that form sort of, cause that definitely the, the style, the style of Chumbawamba was, seemed to be always searching. Like you were always like, it wasn't like one set style of music. I mean, it was very punk in the beginning. Then, you know, you, you, you all added like really big pop features to it. Catchy chorus lines, the acapella stuff live, like talk a little bit about process and how that developed for you as an artist individually. Cause we're interested in your story, but also as the band.
2: I think I think what happened was because we were so heavily uh, influenced by Crass initially. I think we sort of uh, we suppressed a lot of our own musical influences and in what we were, you know, we were, what we were actually listening to at at home, um, which was so Rush think, and Elton John. Established. <laughs> which which if you listen, um, if you if you if you go back through the you know the uh, uh, Chumbawamba catalog, you can tell album by album that we you know that we we were listening to different stuff and we were being influenced by different music along the way. Um, Like the English Rebel, English Rebel Songs album, which was the third album we recorded um, was, was uh, initially, um, we initially thought about doing that, but was because um, a, a few of us had been over to Belfast as part of a Troops Out delegation. And we got into Irish rebel music. We were listening to a lot of, you know, uh, Wolf Tones and Christy Moore and stuff like that. And so and so we were so we had this whole discussion about, look. We seem to have found a lot of irish rebel music uh where's you know where is the English rebel music, and so then you know Boff and Alice, in particular, I seem to recall, went searching for all the the history you know of English rebel music and found all that stuff and 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 that's part of the collective nature of chumbawamba as well is because it was,
0: uh, can i is that something that you like
2: actively would do like let's go research this music. Oh, God. oh what, with that album in particular, yes. That's if you listen to an album like Slap, which was the album we did after that, yeah. that is just apparent that we were the, by then listening to a lot of late 80s, uh, you know, uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, Paul Oakenfold or Andy Weatherall remixes of bands like Happy Mondays or Stone Roses or Primal mm-hmm. Scream, stuff like that. So so what we started to do was bring those influences into our own music, and... Um, uh, but i think very early on even by the t- even when we, st- we were recording our first singles and first albums i think we were thinking about um what what music are we bringing to this you know like what's what are our, what are our influences and we've always i've i always enjoyed the the live performance much more than the recording process myself because i think the live, for me the live performance is also a much more so sort of visceral experience and and I think that's when you really that's when I felt as though we really connected with people and it felt like what we were doing was worthwhile. I think the I think the records were, were more of a um, expression of our, um, you know, of us trying to pull together eight different people's disparate, um, you know, likes and dislikes and, and, and influences and ideas, you know, into one, you know, into into one thing that expressed the all of us. Because I think that was really important to us that we all felt connected to the end product, uh, and that we all felt as though we had something invested in it. That was always very important for us. Um, For you, the final product was the live show. Well, well, for me it was. Yeah, Yeah. for me it always was. Sorry,
1: eight eight people in a band. I mean, uh, (laughs) yeah, I've I've taken on. I've taken on songwriting. You know responsibilities with one other person in bands, many times, and I mean those have almost ended in fistfights. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm like you're in charge or I'm in charge. So that's the only
2: way. To work. We were incredibly disciplined about the whole thing. There was a com- there was a, there was a complete process where we would we would sit down and have a meeting about right. What's the next right? What's the next record going to be about? What's the next record going to sound like? um what are the what's the subject matter going to be who's gonna write that who's gonna who's gonna who's got ideas for this who's got ideas for that the people who wrote lyrics would go off and start writing stuff the people who did the music would get together and start coming up with ideas musically and then we would all bring it then that would all come together uh, That's unusual right that's an unu- yeah, that sounds unusual they- to me. Yeah and that's always part of the reason why uh, everybody was always credited as writing all the all the all the songs and all the music everybody got an equal share in everything that we ever did we never it was never like oh that's
1: your song or that's your song it was also it was always these are our songs so well, um, that came through in live performances too it didn't seem like there was like a star of the show you know like everyone participated yeah i mean it was very collective and that i think that hearing this now Kind of brings that into focus for me as a fan as well. Like, oh, that's why it was so collective on stage because they were. That's exactly how they wrote the music together.
2: Yeah. So I might be singing the lyrics that somebody else has written, but then somebody else might be singing the lyrics that I've written. It just sort of it all. You know, it was all. And there was there was a process where we'd all bring it. We'd all come together, and then this is something that uh, Boff was 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 particularly good at doing was. Make then making that all work together. You know, he would take them all and arrange it together somehow. Uh, and he well, was. he would he would be the he would for the lyrics. He would be the point of contact for us all, sort of thing. Because he he straddled both groups. He was like the musician and a and a lyricist. And so a lot of the time, we'd all be you know like me, Danba, Alice would be writing stuff, and then he'd be taking that and 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 then you know and then him. Uh, and Harry or Maeve or whoever was doing the music at that point would then, you know, like then create something out of that, or we'd all come together, or like so, like for you know, like some people didn't, some people didn't write anything, some people didn't write any music, but they but they was but we were all still part of that whole process because because then Boff would come with something that was a was like a, a rough outline of how it could work, and then we all then we all came together and put that together as a you know then we would so sort of, iron that all out so it would be in a way it would be like if you were making a film it would like somebody would come along with a rough cut and yeah and then and then you would you know then you would go in a room and you would fine cut it you know with all all eight executive
1: producers you know like with their own input you <laughs> yeah. know so did that did that style carry over to um your your band afterwards like when you got when you left Jumbawamba and you were in in Terabang, did you? Is that was that? Did you use that same writing process, or was it was it different? No, <laughs> interesting. Was that so? Was that your band?
2: Liberating. That was liberating, and that was experiencing something that I've never ever done. Yeah, I came with all the lyrics. Wow. Griff came with all the music, and and Harry came with, and then we got Harry involved, and he he did what he wanted to do on drums, and <laughs> he just he was like, he was quite. I mean, Interabang was quite magical in the sense that we all left each other to, that, to our own devices and worked out a way of, um, of of making it work. I mean, me and Griff did spend a lot of time sending stuff back and forwards, like chopping up music and getting it to work with the lyrics that sort of thing. But it was, it was a completely different uh, process. And, but it was one that I found fascinating because I'd never worked like that before. So going back into being in the band, it was it was really it was it was really quite exciting doing it that way because I thought, oh, I've never done this before. <laughs> where I just write some words and nobody tells me to change them. It's yeah. just. But but also but also I think the difference between the two as well is that. Chimbo-Bambo was never uh never wrote lyrics that was there were there were particularly uh personal or or you know um you know from uh um a, expressed a, a sort of a, a you know a, a personal standpoint um they were more like sort of a, a generalized worldview, whereas in Terror Bangers is was an incredibly incredibly personal experience for me so in that sense Griff or Harry couldn't really have changed the words because it was that they were very much my confessionals Whereas Chumbo-Wamba lyrics weren't
1: Mm. about. So during the 90s, um, you know, there was sort of this, uh, you know, it was like a a success revolution. You know, I'd like to call it in some ways, like, you know, here in the States, Nirvana, Green Day. You know, and then Joshua, of course, through everyone loves. So, so to Josh mentioned mention Jawbreaker. <laughs> no, um, no, I watched the
0: Jawbreaker documentary last night with my wife, so it was uh, on my mind. And they showed you're talking about being in They yeah. showed the flyer you guys made and passed out at their, Sell their show. Sellouts. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so my my
2: my. my, my <laughs> If you thought Jawbreaker had sold out.
1: Yeah, so my old bandmate was a, is a guy by the name of Brian Zero who wrote for Maximum Rock and Roll, um, and we played in Siren together. And um, so when Green Day signed to a major label, we made flyers and went to their show at the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma and handed them out. And then when Jawbreaker signed, we did the same thing. Now, to clarify, Jawbreaker and I are very close friends. Adam and I have been friends for 30 years, and I, I actually print their T-shirts so it's sort of this long-standing thing. Like Adam will just randomly post this flyer on Facebook and tag me with it, just to sort of remind people that we weren't always so tight, just, you know. And, I, I swear I don't want to derail this too much, but the best
0: part of that show to me because I think I played that show with Jawbreaker in one of my bands. But the yep. the the flyer was all about how Jawbreaker is Walmart, and then when, <laughs> when Walmart when Jawbreaker came on stage, Blake came out and said, "Hi, we're Walmart." <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, so, and Brian was one of the writers that wrote your your some of your friends are already this fucked issue of maximum rock and roll about corporate you know uh corporate uh music oh. and and so he wrote that a lot of that uh sort of wrote the big article, and then Steve Albini wrote another part of that
2: I think I, think I don't I know you if you ever... have fallen out with Chumbawamba a few years before that, though yeah.
1: Who knows? Who I mean I mean Tim at that time, Tim, who knows what what was going on, right? Yeah. But um so you know, and then there was that wave, you know, and then and then you all had the huge hit, and I know there was a lot of backlash and sell out and, and all that other stuff. I have a different perspective on it you now. Oh Kevin, I haven't seen that? Your about that about chumbo Ambas selling out. Have you got no, news? we didn't make flyers about that. I think we we're. I think. I, I think. I think. Probably at that point, you know. Quite honestly, I was in. Uh, I was. That was. That was like one of the. I was. I was. Start, I. I actually. St- Sort of fell out and and got into drugs and alcohol really hardcore at the end of that time. So I think you guys hit while I was in rehab, and I was probably like actually it was probably something that got me through. To be honest with you, so it's <laughs> you know, like oh my god these guys are a success now you know, and um now yeah, everyone's gonna sad. know about anarchist punk and folk music. That and I uh,
0: thought of uh, the same way. No, for us at least in my my punk household, it was more like. When that song hit, I wasn't that familiar with Chumbawamba, and it was more like, "Hey, you know those are punks, and they play Gilman and stuff." And I was like, "Oh, really? They're cool." Yeah, it was more like, "Oh, they're cool." Did you know they're cool? Coming
2: from a completely different place,
1: yeah, yeah. So So like, no, they're legit. It's okay.
0: That's that was like, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: uh, Wow. So what was it like? I mean, you guys basically start, you start your musical, you know, your endeavors playing squats, essentially, you know, and that was what it was for, for especially for anarchist punk bands at that time. Like, you're going to, if you're going to tour, you're going to play basements.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, living yeah.
1: rooms, wherever squats oftentimes had a venue within them. I saw a great show at Squat in 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 uh, Stockholm, Sweden when I was there uh, in the late eight, or the late nineties, and that was just part of the the whole thing. Was there was almost like an underground touring, you know, kind of like whatever it was. Europe, yeah. European
2: continent was brilliant for that. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. There wasn't so much of that in the UK, but there was a lot of that in Germany, Belgium, uh, Holland. Uh, Italy all had a massive squatting you know music scene an arco music scene that was that we we
1: we were two a year after year you know around those places and, and then so- you started I mean the playing more sort of uh, I guess mainstream venues happened I believe before that song hit
2: yeah yeah
1: you were yeah. doing festivals and some of the other stuff and had kind of built a name for your live performance because it really was. Yeah, really least practical. I mean, it wasn't like all of a sudden the song hit out of nowhere. Really, I mean, especially in 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 Europe. I mean, people knew yeah. you really we'd well.
2: Had, we'd had a few singles that had got to the low reaches of the singles charts at that time. Yeah, and we were playing like we were playing like thousand capacity venues in the UK and around Europe uh, around Europe a lot. So we were we were before that single hit we were sort of we were actually making a very small living from the band. We'd all we would we'd been doing the band full time for a few years by then. And I was we, gonna say
0: for those listeners unfamiliar with independent music, that's huge. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a gold I mean that was a golden era. The sort of mid uh, the early to mid nineties was a, was a fantastic time for uh you know, for for what we were doing, and the and the and the, uh, the number of venues there were around the UK and around the, around Europe in particular was just incredible. We could tour we could tour Germany two or three times a year and not play the same places. You know, play. it was just it was just incredible. It was an incredible scene at that time. It was very very healthy. You know, very healthy indeed. Uh, and and we 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 flourished in that time. You know, and we were we were sort of de- we were almost like developing our craft. You know, and we were we were getting we were getting uh, you know we were getting better and better at what we did, and we were getting more accustomed to playing those bigger venues. You know, we weren't intimidated by the size of places, and yeah, we started to get on the festival circuit. You know, and we got on it, we got we had an agent, we were on a sort of a large independent label in the UK. You know, so it was so it was it's a it's a, it's a weird argument that we do have regularly amongst ourselves as a band about whether that whether that song being a hit was an accident or whether it was inevitable and that's right. a, that, that's a discussion we still have to this day and mm-hmm. people still disagree within the band on whether that was inevitably going to happen or you know whether we were inching closer and closer towards that happening or whether or whether it came completely out of the blue and it was just a zeitgeist thing that just you know like
1: some people uh uh jumped on mm-hmm. uh, and we still have that discussion well, yeah, I mean and it's a I mean it's a worthwhile discussion. It's interesting. I, I think one of the things that when, when that was one of the things that we really changed when I was uh when I'm when I moved when Brian and I moved from this, this really hardcore like animal rights band engaged to Siren, one of the biggest things that we talked about was how are we gonna make the music more accessible? You know, because we wanna get our message out and we wanna do it in a way that's like engaging the community you know that's not like this like and we were incredibly in your face previously and you know we're doing protests with organizations that were you know getting arrested at protests and you know it was just part of the game at that point but I think um what's interesting about that song and sort of it's it's like I now that I'm older I have a different perspective and I think any opportunity to insert uh compassion kindness Good messaging around politics into the mainstream conversation is worthwhile. At the time, I was very like suspect of anything corporate, you know. And um, I think uh, you know it's a it's a really interesting argument to have whether it was sort of the natural sort of organic growth of the band or if, if it was like the lightning struck and you just had this hit. But um, you know what sort of how did that affect the dynamic within the band? Because I'm sure things changed at that point. you all of a sudden you're playing now. You're playing in front of thousands of people.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, really is. I think you need to go back a little bit to okay. before that happened, when uh, which would have been about ninety six, I suppose ninety six, early ninety seven. When we, we when we had a bit of a dip, we had a bit of a dip as a band, and whether what we were doing, we we made the the album before Tubthumper um, is is not a brilliant album. And I think the things that we'd done just before then, you can tell that we were treading water a little bit and, and we'd lost some sort of um, uh, creative um, uh, uh, rush of doing something new and different. This is before uh, that song hit, before this all is that. Before, yeah, this is the album before, an album right. called Singing with Raymond that was um, the, 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 I don't think was the greatest work that we'd ever done. And, and it um, uh, and I think you can tell that we were struggling a little bit. So we went into, and we were sort of, we were sort of falling out a little bit amongst ourselves and, um, we would, uh, it was a time when we were, uh, um, uh, uh, we, we, you know, it was ecstasy was massive. and, that, yeah. and, that, obviously, and <laughs> yeah. then, then cocaine kicked in for us in the UK. So the, the, I mean, cocaine in particular is a, is a horrible, horrible, horrible drug. Um, uh, and, uh, um, and 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 it had an influence. I think it had an, an effect on what we were doing as a band. Um, both those both those drugs probably. Um, and and I think we had to give ourselves. So we had to have a word with ourselves. You know, we had a really big word with ourselves. And so um, I think that album, doing the Tub Thumper album, is. Um, I think I think that's a that's a a statement in itself about us as a band, saying right, okay, you know, we either we either knock it on the head or we get ourselves together and, and make a record that we, you know, that we, that we, that and we fall back in love with the band sort of thing and ourselves. And I think, and I think that's what we did with our Tub album And I think, and I think that is partly the reason why that song, for me, I think that's part of the reason why that song was a success because I think it, it, it echoes that fact that we, you know, we knuckled down again and got on with something and, 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 and didn't throw, something away that was really precious and really important to us all, just, you know, from being complacent about the whole thing. So um, so I think when, so we we had, so then the next big thing was, so we'd recorded that album, we'd made the whole album, we were on One Little Indian at the time, uh, an inter, you know, a big independent in the UK. We took that album to them, they didn't like it. They told us to go away, rewrite the album. <laughs> Or they were going to get some big producers in to produce it. So we were like, okay, fuck you, we're off. So we left, and it was then that we got involved with some old friends who then started touting the record around, and then they got they got people interested in it. And so we'd already written that song, and it was you know we were performing it live at that point, and then people just started coming to gigs and going, you should do that, you should do that, that should be the single, you know. And then and then we got all these record offers, you know, on the back of that one song. You know, yeah. so so you know, we had uh, Republic Records in the in the US and EMI uh, Germany in the for the in the rest of the world. You know, and then and they made as they ba- you know. And the irony of assigning to EMI is obviously not lost on a lot of people because <laughs> we had previously appeared on an album called Fuck EMI. You yeah. know, like you know, so there was so there was a there was an irony about all that and and obviously an a. A hypocrisy about it as well, I suppose. Right. Um, so
0: that's interesting. You weren't signed and had this label, and this hit came out of it. You were sitting there with this album with this hit, and everybody yeah. knew it.
2: Oh man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was that way around. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So a lot of people think that we signed to these major labels and then wrote the song, you know, for the major labels, but we, but we didn't. You know, we'd already written the song and had the album all ready to go. Interesting. And then, and then uh, all these uh, people came along, you know, offering us huge sums of money to sign to their label. Huh. It's a
0: pretty so. catchy song.
1: <laughs> no doubt no doubt i've got to say i still like that song i don't i i i actually i, I mentioned it evergreen when, when we tried to do this a couple of weeks ago uh, to my wife and she spent the entire day walking around singing it afterwards cursing is, me and smiling that's this is the interview my wife is most excited about yeah totally well so so what happened between then and, and when you... Because you left the band before it broke up. You left in, what, 2004, I think I wrote down?
2: Yeah, at the end of 2004. Me, Danbert, Harry, and Alice all left at the end of 2004. Okay. and wow. uh, So and half, half the was, band left. Yeah, half the band left. And that was because Chimewamba is always very, very pragmatic about what we did and how we did things. At the beginning of that year, we made an album uh i can't remember i can't remember if it was un or readymades but it was the last album we made um as a as an eight piece and uh we said right we'll do all the promotion we need to do with this record um we'll do whatever it takes to try and get um you know to to get uh, to to get people because we you know we lost a massive we lost we lost a lot of our hardcore fans when tub thumping happened you know, because a lot of people did think we'd sold out and, you know, we stopped touring. We, we essentially stopped touring for a year or two. And we, and then we and then we made a follow up album, Wizzywig, that was um, incredibly um, it was like we were shooting ourselves in the foot with the album because there was no hits on it. It was it sounded nothing like what we'd previously done. Um, and so it was it seemed apparent that we were trying to get out of the, uh, you know, off the off the. Um, you know, off the hamster wheel. It feels
0: way. like a rock in a hard place, though, in a way, because you know they take these they take these hits and they and they get it out there, and then your your fans don't want anything to do with you after that. But then you're not a band that has that accessibility to yeah, yeah. to break out to go on. Now you're now you're the Rolling Stones or whatever. Yeah, so it's yeah. like. You know, it's just it over was a little rough.
2: Was a bit we're like that, and I think people got burnt out. People got burnt out about that with that experience because none of us had ever experienced anything like that before. Yeah. Even though we were in our, you know, our mid to late thirties, it was still, you know, it was it was it was it was ridiculously hard work. And I think it's harder to to tell a person of that age that they've got to do something than it is, you know, a malleable teenager who just can't believe the look. I suppose. And I think for sure, I think a lot of people in the band were just like. Look, we can't carry on doing this. you know we've done this for two years um and um i think I think I think some people felt um exhausted by the whole experience. people had stopped enjoying it um it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that much fun and and we'd stopped being um i think we stopped being you know the the live band that we that we'd loved being you know because we were like tied into doing so many t v specials or you know all these mm-hmm. diff- all these different shows that we were asked to do, and you know we we did you know we 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 talked about that and we'd agreed that we would do that because we we wanted to subvert the mainstream. We actually thought as an ideal that was a good thing to do with the position we were in. Because well, it's the, on brand too, right? I mean, all your albums are different.
1: Like, it makes sense that your next album yeah. would sound different than the one before.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing, and that was, I think, probably the the what I would see. And I'm, you know, I'm no expert on this stuff, but that was probably the issue with the people that loved that song is they didn't understand the history of the band. They didn't understand that every record sounded quite different. Huh? You know, live performances based on whatever you had recently released were quite different, and it, you know, the, just the experimental part of it when you get a hit like that you lose to some degree your sort of you know the thing that you were talking about with your next project when you're talking about Interbang the the sort of your your autonomy and that you are no longer you're now you're now you're basically a a public object of you know people think you're their property so mm-hmm. you kind of lose that ability to be autonomous and write a new record that's totally within the brand of the band or within the sort of creative process of the band and now you're but now everyone expects tub thumping again right
2: yeah 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 i mean when we were when we were touring in the states in particular we would we, we we changed the whole set around so that was the last song we would perform that last <laughs> yeah. because then everybody would have to stay for the whole uh for, to watch the whole whole show to to get to to get to that song <laughs> because we honestly believed that people would just leave after we did that song, because we we had a whole new we we weren't necessarily trying to talk to the audience we already had. We were trying to talk to the new people, and right. you know, so we so we were sort of we were kind of on a mission in a way to like sort of broaden that broaden our fan base, but also to to. Um, to uh you know put out those new ideas to people who would never ever be exposed to those ideas uh, one interesting thing that did happen with that uh, with that single in the, in the states was that uh, uh, republic released the single as a limited edition single and that sold out quite quickly so to mm. hear the, to hear the song you had to buy the album so in a in a way, and we didn't even know. Republic never even told us they were doing this. That they hmm. were doing some marketing ploy, but it what it meant was was we sold millions of albums because people just wanted that one song, right. and so it, pre iTunes as well. Uh-huh. So so it meant right. that...
1: you well, couldn't just pick the single.
2: You couldn't just pick the single up, you know. You had to get the whole album. Interesting. So that that to us was like, well, great, you know, like there's a you know there's a whole album's worth of stuff on there. There's you yeah. know everything that's on the sleeve. There's you know like it's a whole it's a whole it's a whole package. So even though yeah. that was a song on the album, the, the hope was that you know that some of that permeated in somewhere.
1: Yeah. So um, what kind of what was the what was the impetus for you to leave in two thousand four?
2: Yeah, so we had this pragmatic idea that um, we we did an album and we'd work as hard as possible on it, and if it made no difference whatsoever uh, to the number of people who were coming to our shows, then the four of us would leave because we'd been we would been touring through two thousand and three, two thousand and four, and we were losing money on every show. We we we, you know, there was about sixteen of us going on tour. You know, eight of the bands. Eight crew or six crew, fourteen of us. So yeah. it was a big operation, and we were playing to smaller and smaller crowds, um, and it just became it. It just meant that we were losing money all the time. So we had this idea that we would um, uh, do a year of trying to of trying to um, change that, and uh, so we did that, and it didn't make any difference. So at the end of uh, two thousand and four, me, Harry, Alice, and Amber all uh, all left, hmm. and and then that, but then what happened was that you know the others carried on. As an acoustic outfit, you know they carried on with the name yeah. and de- and found their own niche yep. as a, as an acoustic outfit. So so the, the the band did actually
1: carry on, you know, for another I don't know five or six years after that or something. something right. Like that. So and relatively successfully. I mean, they played. They were playing festivals as well. I think it's easier
0: schools. now to be a niche. Yeah, in in any media. Yeah, because it's just easier to find a little crew and make that sustainable. Totally.
2: That's what it was. It was that it was sustainable. There was four or five of them in the band, one or two crew, and you know, so they were they were still doing they were still doing stuff, you know, in Europe and Canada and stuff like that. And you know, they they became I don't know whether they would describe themselves as a folk band, but that was the that was the niche that the that was the the umbrella that they then came under. And and mm-hmm. because and because they had a certain amount of kudos because what they'd done before you know that started their their you know their um their own their own sort of um, adventure into that into that world so right, they kept right. they sustained that for quite a few years. So, so you Yeah, like
1: you you when you left the band, I mean, w- had you already been making films, or is this something that happened when you were done with Chumbalumba?
2: In nineteen ninety nine I sort of made a film with uh, a guy called Ben Unwin that was uh-huh. a film called Well Done Now Sod Off, which is right. sort of the story which of I Chumbawamba. Seen. Yep. Yeah. Um so we sort of made that together, um which sort of was like an attempt to just tell the whole story of Chumbawamba. So right. that was the first that was the first experience I'd had of filmmaking and I really, really enjoyed it. Right. And then I uh, What do you
0: enjoy about it?
2: um i think it was because it was a different discipline and it was and it was something that i was doing with somebody else that it wasn't a collective you know eight of us making a decision about um, what everything we filmed and what and what shape the film took it was just me and ben unwin deciding what the film was going to be i mean then we did once we once we'd met you know once we'd done a rough cut we then took it to the band and then everybody had input to it obviously but um at that point it was like it was it was just like It it came along at a very good time because, you know, we'd been doing the band for so long and everybody was a bit burnt out by the uh, by the tooth thumping experience and and wanted to have a like a bit of a break. So I didn't I didn't want that break. So I, I was really happy to go and try and do something, you know, to to challenge myself in a way to do something new. So that was really so that was a really exciting prospect, you know, going off to do to make that film. And I really enjoyed that experience. It was amazing. So that's what that sort of whetted my my appetite. But then, but then I then I started a relationship with a uh, a film uh, a filmmaker Daisy Asquith, who would be making films for TV, uh, documentaries for TV, and then. Uh, I famously said to her one day, oh, it looks quite easy doing that. I think I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking furious. <Dad. laughs> it's that easy just to do. Like, it, looks, it looks quite easy. I think I might be able to do it. And she was like, she was really, I mean, she laughed about it afterwards, but at the time it was like, fuck. I never, and you know, and then, so then I went on to, you know, make, start trying to make, well, we actually, me and her set up a production company ourselves. And so I worked on some of her documentaries, and then in um, 2009 I got the opportunity to go to China. With yeah, Shan that, that I want to talk about. Yeah, and that was the and That was what it. was
1: that opportunity? So it's a film. The film you can find. Uh, actually, I think there's even. I mean, maybe Vimeo or YouTube. But um, this band is so gorgeous. I think and I did. I send you a link. Yeah, you sent yeah. me a link, and um, so you should have to Josh. I highly recommend it. We'll I post mean, it on the site, too. Yeah, we'll post
2: it. And oh, there is a problem with our film, actually. What's the problem? Well, it's that um, I'm not allowed to show it anywhere. Oh, interesting. Because, because there are two
1: Sham 69s. Right, that's right, because the, yeah. the singer came back and re yeah. restarted. Yeah. So it's, Jimmy
2: Perthy, who was a yeah. one of the songwriters... He blocks that film ever coming out because he wouldn't get permission for me to use any
1: of their music in the film. Because he he wasn't in the band at the time. He wasn't in the band. No, no. So it's
2: always quite complicated. Uh, it's it's so no. there are two Sham 59s. Yeah, but, but the, just you can see it. You it's know, so, I, it's so
1: it's really good, and the oh, I'm gonna watch it, fans are so excited. It's like <laughs> it's sort of like watching teenagers get into punk for the first time. It's, I, it's really, I mean, it resonates so much. Like, yeah. you know, and I, I just started watching the, um, the A Curious Life film, oh, and yeah. I didn't even know the Levelers. Yeah. So there's a this, and it's truly, I mean, God, what an amazing group of guys. <laughs> like, really interesting, like totally eccentric. Yeah. But their music is so good. Yeah. I'm like, now I'm kicking myself that I'd never heard of them because they've got like multiple gold records in the UK. And they're just like, oh, my God, their, their energy live is amazing. It's a really that's also a very good film so far of what I've seen. I've seen I've, I've watched about half of it. And um, can just you give really, the title to that one one more time? A Curious Life, Thanks. the story of the, the levelers.
2: Um, it's, it, it's it's funny that film because I made I made the decision to make that film be about Jeremy the bassist you know the guy with the dreads because he had he he definitely had the most interesting story out of all the bands. and I used I kind of used that template for the film I'm making about Chumbawamba um, mm-hmm. but I just decided to make it about myself yeah.
1: <laughs> <And that's so laughs> well, it's a good template, and it's <laughs> shot, it's shot really well. I mean, if you look at the the quality of the the um, Sham Sixty Nine film, yeah, yeah. and then you level up to the equipment you're using in the the Levelers film, it's like you know, like that's the true. it's it's really well, nicely the, the,
2: the China film, the Sham Sixty Nine China film. Um, we went into China without permission, without any permission. And we had a couple of um, Sony A1 cameras that used cartridges. Uh, It was me, you know, a a cameraman friend who lives over the road from me. We went over to make make that film. And so we were shooting on the fly all the time. And it was this fear that we were always going to get caught and everything was going to get taken off us. So it was all, all, and I was just learning, you know, that was me.
1: I was learning how to make a documentary in a way. But I mean, I think one of the things that would, you know, is fair to say is through your career artistically, you know, and your experience, like you kind of took the learnings from Chumbawamba and have applied them. I mean, oh, you're—it's you're, like continuous improvement, always learning. You know, yeah, yeah. that for me, like, is such a, you know, if that's like really like a very punk ethos in my opinion now other people would disagree people get stuck into their kind of beliefs and they stay there and you know you got to be this and you know whatever but I, I really find that to be so compelling and inspirational
2: i think i think what i've always found is that what what's i think what's always been important to me is that um like in the in the in the in the late 70s early 80s i think we found we were we were like looking for all the cracks in, yep. you know, to you know to to be able to form you know like a little community within the cracks and I think I still do that now. I think that is one thing that I still do, do now. It's about it. Still feels to me as though it's about you know finding those finding those people finding those connections. Um, always being able to uh, respond to to your creative urge and to be able to do something about it. Um, and that that is something that I think I've always taken from you know and not being not being afraid you know to make those jumps and those leaps. I think I think I don't think I would have gone to China with Sham 69, if if, if I hadn't gone through the experience of, you know, like, you know, like taking those massive leaps that I took, you know, when punk came along. Because I was, as it happens, I was never into Sham 69 when I was into punk. They weren't my sort of punk band. Yeah. But, uh, but but I think the, the, what it meant for me, you know, going there and doing that and taking that risk. And I think that's what Chumbawamba did. I think Chumbawamba always took risks and didn't, didn't necessarily do what uh, was the best thing, uh a uh, business wise or you know <laughs> career wise you know i think we did what we thought was best for us first yeah. um and, and i think and i think i and i think i've uh, not in a selfish way i don't think but i think i've always done that myself you know in the decisions i've made and even to this day you know i still i still want to be i still want to be creative and i want to find outlets for that and i'm right, still right. always looking for you know people you know who who you know you can make a connection with, and uh, particularly nowadays when the world seems in such a absolutely fucked up state, uh, <laughs> you know with you know like I think I think when um, uh, like in the UK when uh, the Tories won the last election, you know stuff like that, or when you know Brexit happened and all that sort of thing. I think you just think, well, look, okay, you know I've still got to find my community and my people and work, you know, within that community, and and I think that community idea for me has come out of, particularly out of the anarcho punk movement in the early eighties, you know, that idea of community, and you -hmm. know, a lot of people that from the early eighties that I'm still friends with now. So it's, you know, it's, it's had a lasting, it's had a lasting impact on me more, actually more than what punk did more than what, you know, 77, 78 punk did. I think that anarcho punk movement of like from about 80, 81 to 84. I think that is what, that, that, that has had a bigger impact on me than, than, than what actual, you know, punk did in in what I actually do uh, right. with my own life. You know, and you know whether I've got you know like weirdly we were talking about house prices earlier. You know, even if I've got a mortgage stuck up my ass, you know, I'm still trying to do something. You know, creative. You know, even if I've got you know, think about what you know, how I will get my kids out of bed in the morning. I'm still trying to do something creative. You right, know, and, right. I think that's, and I'm still trying to find people. You know, to work to always try to work with and do stuff with them. And that community thing is really important to me. You know, I think that's you know, I think, I think yeah. that's an essential thing because I think we need each other. I think we really, really need each other. You know, because um, I think we all I think we all inspire each other. I mean, like it's, it's funny because I'm doing this because Miriam Stahl telling me to do it. You know, you know, <laughs> totally yeah, what, what she does, and she's a you know, she's an amazing friend. And I oh. think the stuff she produces is absolutely incredible, you know. So she's like a she's like a sort of role model, and she's somebody who I've met through Chumbawanda you know,
1: years ago, and we've yeah. remained you know we've been friends. It's well, stuff she, like she, she's sort of like woven through so many of my relationships, and you know, I mean, she, you know, we had the 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 band, um, well, two of the band members. Uh, of the the Street Eaters on, um, and she drew the album cover for one of their records. She drew the Jawbreaker flyer when they came back to Gilman for the first time in twenty yeah. years or whatever, you know. And we interviewed her uh, a couple of years ago, and it was just, she's just so like she, she's so humble. I feel like sometimes she doesn't even know how impactful what she does is, you know, like it's that that level of humility. But she connects people.
2: Yeah, that's why, one of the things I love about her is the fact that she just, uh, her art speaks for her, and she doesn't need, it's like almost as though she doesn't need to explain uh, what she does, because she's so prolific, and she does yeah. such brilliant stuff. She did all the interbang artwork. Oh, know. I was going to
1: ask, so so yeah. are you are you playing music right now? What's the, well, obviously, no, no, right now. <laughs> no, no, uh, interbang did one album, and we mm. Um, we worked
2: on that for a long time. A lot of life got in the way for for, for yep. uh, members of the band, um, so it, it sort of went on some sort of hiatus. I started doing a solo thing that I'm now trying to develop into a uh, into a theatre performance. A one man, it's like a sort of a one man show the awesome. existential awesome. angst of Dunstan Bruce. Uh, <laughs> really? That sounds amazing. Yeah. So I've so I've started doing I started doing it as a performance, a one man performance thing at some gigs. I got quite a few like support slots along the way. But I'm now trying to develop it into something a bit bigger, into an actual theatre piece. Nice. Uh, but but again that's that's me taking a leap. I've never done theatre before in my life. Yeah, um, but I know that's going to be cool because
0: because <laughs> we usually don't go this long, but I would sit here and listen to you talk
1: for yeah. <laughs> forever, yeah forever. Well, and and I think you know that's the other part of like continuing to grow in, as an artist, right? Like oh, yeah. you have, in many ways, you have done theater. Having seen Chumbawamba live, I'm going to fairly say well, well, that there yeah. was that was there was for yeah. for for a lo-fi punk band to some degree, like, it, and there wasn't like a giant you know slideshow going on behind you i mean but the the kind of antics and things that you that you're as a band brought into it the dancing and the choreography and you know the hats and the white gloves and the other stuff it's like you know it was like at that time no punk bands were doing that kind of stuff you uh, know um and and so what about the 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 so you've got these the films that have obviously been released. What, so what about the Chumble the film that you've been working on? I mean, I know that's been sort of a a long project for you.
2: Yeah. All liberal of So that started yeah. off as a film about it started off as a film about what can you do when you uh get into the mainstream, you know, what is it what what is it possible to achieve in that situation? Right. But it's but the but because the film's taken so long um, and we've had so many uh, uh, knockbacks with, uh, with trying to get funding that the, the nature of the film has completely changed to have this whole contemporary element to it. So the story is now as much about my journey from, you know, the early days of punk to now. And what does a what does a oh I'm 59 now? What does a 59 year old man do? You know, or what does a 59 year old person do? You know, in in the world today to make you know to 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 try and make a difference or to have an impact? You know, that,
0: so you keep summing up our show over and yeah. over again, like, like <laughs> the idea that okay, what's next? I guess I'll I'll figure out how to do this documentary stuff, and then oh, I'm going to figure out how to do this one man show thing, and 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 taking this idea that. You were a kid and you saw someone play punk music or whatever, and you said, I can do that, and then taking that forward to all things.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, it's Chumbawamba that's allowed me to do that, because Chumbawamba gave me the confidence and the grounding to think you can do, you know, I can do, you know, if I if I have the confidence, I can do whatever I, whatever I want to do. And I think that's that's so sort of instructed. You know what i've what I've done ever since it gave me mass it gave me the confidence to say to Daisy I, I think I could do that you know like when I was just being yeah. stupid arrogant, and it gives me the confidence <laughs> to think yeah I can do I can have a band with two other people or I can do a one man show of course I can do a one man show anybody can do a one man show
1: you know, like- <laughs> <laughs> oh my God and i'm 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 not shy as as Joshua can well attest. i'm not a I'm not a i'm an I'm an extrovert by every definition of the world, but I don't think I could do a one man show. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so you know hats off. I mean, it's a it's a it's amazing. and i i like I deeply respect your commitment to just you know ever kind of expanding your horizons in the art community. We desperately need it. I mean, these times are so sad for so many people. yeah, and um you know, we've got. We can all connect. I mean, I've been loving watching all these live casts of all these artists that are just doing it for free because they want people to feel connected, you know, and it's like almost like we're returning to our roots with art to some degree, you know, because People are just looking for something, some greater purpose. and
0: All artists hopefully... need attention more than they need money, you know? So yeah. If
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and hopefully... <laughs> Joshua, that's why you're writing a solo record, my friend. Yeah. Uh, um... So I, the, the beginning of, of well done now saw off has a quote from Emma Goldman. And I think it really sums up our conversation. I mean, it's, if I can't dance to it, it's not my revolution. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, uh, uh yeah, it's, it's quite succinct in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of sums up all that sort of thing. And I think, I think I've always tried to follow that as an idea that, um, um, uh, th- how you change, I mean, we Chumbawamba came to a point where it was like, look, you don't change the world by shouting in someone's face you, you've got more chance of changing someone's opinion by making them laugh yeah. or the ridiculousness of something or the absurdity of something, you know, and you would hope that the world could see what idiots Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are, you know and that, that they're laughable figures, I mean it's frustrating that we're in this situation <laughs> that they're both world leaders, obviously but, um uh, I just I just find that, um, you know, trying to change, trying to change people's opinion, you know, and like so this film, this film that I'm making now the you know, the I get knocked down film. I mean, it's it's for someone with such a large ego as myself, it's very self disparaging, you know, and I'm laughing at myself all the way through it. The ridiculousness of, you know, my 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 high ideals or my, you know, like or what I think is possible. Um, but but I think that's I think that's a better way to try and connect with people, you know, Um uh, we interview. Uh, uh, I go and see Ian Mackay in this film, oh. which is well,
1: Ian's uh, coming on the show soon. So
2: it, it, oh, it was brilliant. Honestly, the interview was absolutely amazing. I mean, it, it felt like he was telling me off for about an hour and
1: an hour. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Brilliant. I know, I'm like, I'm kind of bracing myself for this, <laughs> for this interview because...
2: I absolutely loved it. And we've made, we've created such a brilliant scene out of it because obviously I totally and absolutely admire what he does. And, yeah. you know, and his, 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 you know, his, his, his beliefs and his opinions and the way he does stuff, it's incredible. I don't do things the way he does, and I think it's great that he does that.
1: And I don't and think anybody does things the way he does. I, like we could all hope to be that, you know, ethical over the entire yeah. our entire, you know, life and career. <laughs> uh,
2: but you know, I can't do I can't do that, and I don't want everybody to be like me, and mm-hmm. I don't want everybody to be like Ian. I think there's, you okay. know, this. There's room for us both, but fucking hell! It felt like I'd been totally battered by the time I left that by the time I left that interview. But yeah. you know, I totally admire you know I totally admire him as a you know. So it was fascinating. We went to interview Penny Rimbo as well, you mm-hmm. know, the drummer of Crass, and that yeah. and that that equally was as, as equally absurd for different reasons, you know. Interesting. And, you know, so it was so it was a it's been a fantastic you know it has been an absolutely fantastic journey you know the whole thing. You know, um, going from, you know, going from, you know, from Ian McKay to Penny Rimbo so, to, you know, like talking to, you know, the other members of the band and all that sort of stuff.
1: So yeah, <laughs> well, what an amazing, what an amazing, uh, what an amazing project. I look forward to hearing more. And we'll, we can talk a little offline about what we can do to help promote as well. Um, you know, so I think we should probably wrap. We've we've gone way over. I, I agree with jo- Joshua.
2: I love my friends saying, where the where the fuck are you? Yeah. I was yeah. supposed to be out on the street playing records. Oh, <laughs> I live on a cul-de-sac, so I was going to set record decks at the end of the street and we are going to oh, just amazing. have a. Oh, that's of fantastic. fantastic. On the street.
1: Amazing. <laughs> I love that. amazing. Right yeah, once this is done, you should come do uh, some DJ sets here.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> come, come back them. over. Promote the film with DJ sets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really start expanding the artistry, right? But uh, I really we really appreciate your time, Dunstan. I this has just been truly like one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> we're not even we're not even produ- produced and up yet. I'm so excited to put this up. I
0: it's know funny. it's I know that I love it when I look up and I see the hours gone by and I'm like, dude, <laughs> we haven't even started talking about documentaries yet.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, thanks
1: so I much can, for I coming on. Also, so <laughs> yeah. Well keep keep us posted too. Obviously we're connected it, yeah. now. Um, and then we'll let you know when this is going up. Uh, we okay. we're lucky enough to have a few, we have another documentarian also that, and filmmaker that we interviewed in this season as well. So it's kind of, I feel like we're getting like a full spectrum of artists from the, from the punk community. Right, yeah. It's really awesome. Um, so, uh, we, we look forward to to hearing more. So a couple of things I want you to, to tell us where to go to find your stuff.
2: Oh. Um, um, Google it, or go to our website cool. and click on the link. Yeah, I don't really have a Yeah, I don't really have a website. as happens. Yeah, we'll um, put links inter- to all the stuff. There is an website. Okay. I think it's uk. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So we, we'll, we'll put,
1: we
2: that. We released that album on all the Madmen. Men. Okay. With an old, uh, an old, anarcho punk label from the eighties. Nice. Um, nice. There's a band called the Mob. Have you heard of a band called the Mob? I don't um, think so. All oh, right. right. They were. Yeah, they were. They, they were bigger. They were probably bigger over here than they were over there.
1: But um, I'll look through my. I have a bunch of old Anarcho Punk uh, seven inches that uh, that Brian, who I mentioned, and his sister brought back to me when they would make trips over there because they were good friends with uh, Dick from Subhumans and Sub. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, we're we're donating all of our money through the end of the year from our Patreon account to a local nonprofit called Hospitality House, who uh, helps people that are have mental health issues and are struggling with substance abuse get off the street. Uh, they do it through art and music uh, as well as peer to peer counseling, which is rare. Uh, amazing organization, small organization. So every penny we get, we are we're donating to them because they need the money, especially right now. Um, we. Encourage people to look up Dunstan. He's easy to find on the Googles. Uh, I, you can get a treasure trove of information, history, uh, you know, amazing projects. The films are all up. We'll share links, um, and then we will look forward to posting this episode, my friend. It was really an honor to have you on. It
2: was a pleasure. It's an absolute
0: pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> it was fantastic. Thanks for listening, everybody. No, thank you.